Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Jordan Ford and this is the Think Epic podcast, the podcast that dives into the world of creative media production from those who do and know it best. And just to explain to you really quickly as to why this podcast exists, I really want to get a conversation going with a wide range of skill sets. So I want producers, directors, writers, engineers, specialist cinematographers, everyone across the spectrum that makes a big production happen and fall into place and run smoothly and win the next BAFTA, basically. This is episode one, which I recorded with a good friend of mine, producer and director Mark Price. In this podcast, we spoke about financing your film, working with small budgets, and so much more. So I really hope you enjoy it. But before we start, this is his bio. Mark's debut feature in 2008, Colin, won six international film awards, including Best Feature at Raindance and a nomination at the British Independent Film Awards. Screening at Cannes, Fright Fest and Sidges, Colin has been released theatrically not only in the UK, but Germany, Japan, North America, Canada and Australia. It was also reviewed by Martin Scorsese, describing it as savage with an energy that takes the zombie idea to another level disturbing. Mark's second feature, Magpie, was released theatrically in the US and is currently featured on Amazon Prime Movies. Mark has also developed projects for Film Force Frightfest, CBBC, E4 and BBC3. Night Shooters was screened at Raindance 2018, where it was nominated for Best UK Feature and won Best Action Feature at Thriller Chiller Fest in Michigan. Mark's next feature film, a western for Sony US, A Fistful of Lead, was released in December 2018 and has just finished production on his latest film, School of the Damned. There it is, it's happening. We're on. That's it. I think I was the first person ever to speak on your podcast. This is episode I, one. I chimed in before you even <laughs> said anything. I went, oh God. That's it. So that's yeah. it. You set up for a standard no joke. You're a great host. <laughs> it's only up from here. <laughs> okay so mark price thanks very much for being on episode one thank you thank you for having me um just like to start with a little bit about um your influences and how how you got to where you are today or even took up this crazy career in the first place (laughs) um yeah i think i I think it was wow i think it was i was definitely in my sort of mid-teens or maybe early teens i think i wanted to act at first and then uh, I'd made the mistake of being in a school play and then I saw a video recording of myself and everyone said, oh, that was really good. You were great. And I thought, yeah, man, I'm, I'm the shit. And then I saw that video and I went, holy Christ, I'm terrible. Everyone was saying that out of pity. I'm the one, fuck acting. That, what else can I do? I thought, I know if I direct, that'd be great. I can play all the parts in a way as I'm describing to an actor how to do it, which obviously isn't how you direct, which I, I learned. But um yeah, but I sort of, but it sort of started going in that direction. And I remember speaking to a sort of careers advisor of all people in school and thinking, right, he's going to tell me no, take up welding or something. And uh, he was great. He said, oh, wow, that's interesting. How, how do you plan to get into that? And I said, maybe commercials. Uh, and then I'll move on to filmmaking. He said, that's what Alan Parker did and Ridley Scott. And I went, oh, okay. And I thought, great. I mean, I didn't do that at all. Like, that wasn't how I went down the road. I was more kind of in Swansea. I just didn't really know how to go about it. I moved to London met some amazing actor people who, unlike my friends in Swansea, wanted to be in things uh, and started making films with decent performances and thought, oh, this is fun. And then I just decided stupidly to make a feature. (laughs) (laughs) Can you remember what that play was? The play was Joseph and his amazing technical dream coat. Oh, that's intense role. <laughs> I was the fucking Elvis E. King dude. I was like, I wasn't the main guy in it. Like, actually, funny enough, an, an actor friend of mine who's still acting, really good playwright, um, was the lead in that. A uh, really good friend of mine from school. I'm still friends with. And uh, he's, yeah, uh, he was Joseph. And he was great. Everyone was great, except for me. I was the worst. <laughs> When you look back, was there a single moment that made you realise that this is exactly what you want to do? It's such an odd thing how this sort of came about. I remember around about the same age, I think I was about maybe 15, 16, I'd really got into Star Trek. Um, Like the movies, really, not so much the TV shows, but I loved the films. And I found out that the cast sort of didn't get along, really. They kind of hated each other. And and as a kid, I was like, oh, no, but they're such a great team on screen. It's really disappointing to find out that in between takes, they weren't having a really great time, hanging out, having a laugh. Um, And so I was, was, that that really bothered me. (laughs) So I think on all the films I've made, short films, features, anything I've been involved in or around, I've always felt it's really important that the team kind of click and get along because 
in that scenario, you have people who are happy to be there, enthusiastic, and what you're doing is you're able to harness that enthusiasm and turn whatever you're making, no matter how hard the experience is of pulling those things together, those shots, the the performances, anything, locations that are usually, because it's usually always locations uh, on a low-budget film, it just always ends up a much more enjoyable experience. Even when it comes down to little things, like uh, if I have to film a scene where two actors have to get quite rough with each other, you know, you read all these cool stories about, like, Paul Greengrass when he was doing United 93, keeping you know, the actors who played the terrorists away from the actors who played the passengers. And and you think, oh yeah, on paper, that sounds like a really great way to concoct a divide between these two types of performers. But in my head, I kind of thought, well, no, if those guys were mates, they'd be a little bit more rougher. They wouldn't be as delicate with each other. The A degree of professionalism might even sort of fall away so that these guys would would maybe roughly grab someone if that felt right in a moment. Then at the end of it, they'd be like, oh, I didn't expect you to grab me then. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. And, no, 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 that was great. Do it again. You know, you get those moments when people click and get along. And, uh, you know, I think on, on the films I make, there's always some... I, 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 there's so many stories of things that come together that are really satisfying because of those happy accidents that occur because everyone's very comfortable in their space. You never do it when you're doing a fight, obviously. You don't improvise, <laughs> suddenly start throwing punches or anything like that because that's very dangerous. But um, you do get those lovely moments of, of personal interaction where boundaries between people uh, have sort of fallen apart. And what you have is, you know, lovely performances that are sincere. So if someone's meant to be a friend... Your, the actors are more tactile, for example, or are very comfortable pushing a distance away from each other. There's, there's things you find in the performances, and I get that are guys like you know, James Groom and, and Phil DeGuara, who were friends for years before I worked with them. Um, and, you know, and then that spreads when guys like Nicky Evans and the case of Night Shoes comes in and he doesn't know anyone there except for me. And then he's able to sort of fit in with them very comfortably. And, and then those personal development, uh, personal relationships develop just kind of it's kind of a horrible word to say exploiting that kindness and camaraderie but that is essentially what you're doing um but you're exploiting it in a good way where no one's feeling cheated or (laughs) not exploiting in the worst way you know (laughs) your friends huh now take all your clothes off you know none of that shit (laughs) this um this segues really nicely into my next question actually when you're on a shoot a lot of the time You've not got enough time. Uh, the weather conditions could be really bad. You could be working long hours or nights. And at that point, you know, it can be quite challenging. So what are you doing on set to keep the team morale up? Well, interestingly, I think those are a lot of those sort of jobs have been the ones that we've worked on together. Because mm-hmm. I, I think the thing that... Um, 24-hour... Yeah, it's like... Mental. We, we're getting on a plane, we've got to go to another country, we've got to film something like a commercial project really quickly, and then we've got to get back, you know, sometimes the same day. It's draining. And um, not in the same way, obviously, as like, you know, like mining or, you know, uh, building a house or, you know, like like a real, like a real job, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep some perspective here, sure. But... <laughs> But, you know, I mean, you're kind of knackered and, and, you know, those just just being tired can sort of affect you a little bit. But I think one of the things that, like, I've always enjoyed when we're on jobs together, I think I always get very, I'm always very, uh, the first thing I ask whenever we're sent on, the the commercial company that we work for send us on work, I'm like, oh, who am I with? And they always, whenever they say Jordan, they just go, yes, great, cool, I know this is going to be fine. And and it's just as much to do with, I think, those sort of, the personal relationships and and how we because we, we have I've been trying for a while and we just you've you've been very busy and we haven't had a chance to get you in but I want you mm-hmm. to you know be director of photography on on one of the the features that we're doing so it's 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 just finding the time where all those things fit and it will you know yeah, it, it inevitably will but I think that when it, when those you have those sort of tricky jobs it's just about bringing out all of the practical skills that you've picked up and learned along the way so I mean. I, it's it's it happens on on every on every feature film project. I mean, you never have enough time. We never have enough money, ever. And I and I think that goes all the way up to the top. I was reading um, we, we I was reading uh, something about the cinematographer of Titanic, and he was talking about all the cheats they did to make that film look more expensive than it was. And at the time, that was the most expensive film ever made. So like even the, <laughs> so even at that end of the, of the spectrum, you're talking about you know 
lots of filmmaking skill that you have to pull together. And if the team sort of respects, has a mutual respect back and forth, then I think what you're inevitably going to end up with are a team of people that when things get really tough, people are going to throw ideas around that can get you out of a hole. And, and, and you know, the, you, you can only have that if everyone's kind of comfortable enough to suggest ideas. Because, you know, we have some issues on some of the films that we make and, you know, it's an, an, an AC or it's uh, a, a runner or sometimes the chef will throw an idea at us. I say chef, you know, the person that puts all the pasta in the bowl with the water and the sauce, you know, like they'll, they'll, they'll throw in ideas and, uh, you know, and it'll help get you out of trouble. And, you know, and so I, I think it's really important to not necessarily have those dividing lines because I can manage them. So I, I, it's okay when actors and crew and, you know, and, and runners and ACs and, you know, when they all like work together. So not runners, production assistants, shit, I've just made like a, a, a non-PC faux pas already. How dare you? Oh God, <laughs> they've, they've been through so much. They shouldn't just be called runners. Christ. Um, Production assistants? Is that what we can? Yeah. PAs. PA, yeah. What? PA. <laughs> Some of <those laughs> worse. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so it's, it, I think it's just finding those encouraging ideas from that, from those guys. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what is your best advice for working with low budgets and limited resources? Yeah, the, the, the films we've been doing recently, they've, they've got very small budgets, um, but they're features and we've got distribution. So uh, with those, I mean, those budgets are essentially payroll. We have very little to actually put into production. So we're falling back constantly uh, on the skills of the team. So if we want a shot to look like, uh, you know, like, uh, like something that's designed and a set has been constructed when in fact we're on a location that we've been allowed a certain, a limited amount of access to. It's about taking the skill set of that team and saying, right, how do we make this look like that? How do we make this look like a thing that was constructed specifically for the sole purpose of telling this part of our story? And, you know, it's, you know, when you've got cinematographers like yourself and Sam Walker and, and Tom Barker, you know, it's you know, it's it's the 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 ideas that are generated that I'm going, oh, fantastic, let's do that, let's try this. You know, the the rules that I throw in when we're writing, like uh, for example, in in night shooters, there are a lot of lights, uh, a lot of practical lights, because me and Tom wanted that. We thought that would be a really interesting way to to light the movie. It's something we can't do on say uh, on, on the western on Fistful of Lead. We couldn't do that because practical lights are candles and, and that's not generating enough light for us to really light our scene the way we want to so we're you know i mean one on fistful of lead that i'm really pleased with uh because this is great because this is sam walker being perfect uh he's such a calming presence he's very energetic you've worked with sam yeah. on a couple of projects he's just a really good guy to to be around very creative and something had gone wrong where we we'd managed to strike a deal with a, a company that was giving us you know sort of lenses and and gels and all, all that sort of thing. And so we got to Wales and the, the kit was there for us, waiting for us. And then we went through it and went, oh, they haven't given us the orange gels, which means that this entire scene that's lit by fire, we didn't have the gels to light it by fire. And yeah, we could have worked that into the grade. Um, we could have worked that into the grade and it would have been uh, kind of cool and it would have worked fine. But unfortunately, you know, as a cinematographer, you want some truth in what you're capturing, right? Uh, so uh, Sam was said, I've got an idea, leave it to me. And I just went, do I need to stand around as you solve this problem and get stressed? Or can I go and do some of the other stuff that I need to get done? And he said, oh, you can go and do that. That'll be fine. I said, cheers, buddy. And I left completely confident that whatever Sam was going to come up with, it would have been great. Because, you know, it's nice to have that trust. And his solution was, uh, <laughs> he saw that he went to the catering and said, um, I say catering, this is my producer who doubled as caterer on, on the shoot and AD and all, all these great... Because you've got a small team. You can't afford to have a full crew, in a sense. Um, and he said, oh, see that pack of Fanta you've got there? That six-can pack of Fanta. Can I have the wrapper? Like, and he just gaffer taped the orange Fanta stuff to the bulb. And uh, that was our orange light. And we would move it around and, and jiggle it around to make it look like fire. And it was like essentially a pack of, a pack of Fanta. And I went, yep, great, genius, sorted. And 
those scenes in the finished film are like visually the most striking scenes in the film. It's uh, it's incredible. So there's there's constant stuff like that happening in films. I mean, on Night Shooters, another one we had was um, it would take a very long time with this building, which didn't have power. Because when a building's rigged for demolition, it doesn't have power. In the movie, we were cheating, and there was you know, turn a light on, boom, lights come on. We've got scenes that are lit. Um, what we did in 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 that was uh, it would take a long time to move the generator from to a different location, and you know as always we'd filmed part of an action scene and we were a little bit behind, and I said look, instead of us spending forty minutes moving generator, because we're in a building that's actually rigged for demolition anyway, not through explosions but through wrecking balls and stuff, I said how about we just smash that wall down over there, using I don't know whatever the fuck we can find, and Tom went yeah, that'd be great. So then me and Tom Barker and then the runners and anyone could get involved just kicked this this facade down, smashed it all up, moved the lights around. Suddenly we're in a new room. That's our new room. We did the next scene. We filmed the rest of the day in that space. So there's lots of little tricks like that that we're constantly doing on every project. And there's a, there's a story like that to go with every film I think we've done. <laughs> Some, in terms of stories like that, what are your favourites from the from the Hollywood favourites that you have? <laughs> Surely you must know many. Oh, the, the Hollywood ones. Um, uh, there's one I really love from Aliens. Uh, okay. There's um, there's James Cameron all the time. I'm just talking about Titanic, <laughs> Aliens. There's one in Aliens I really love where um, it's, as, it's the shot as they're walking into the hive. Uh, the alien hive for the first time is that lovely shot you see the roof and all that stuff and the camera tilts down you see the marines walking towards it and Ripley's like I don't know what that is and it's a really cool moment because she wasn't in that the derelict spaceship in Alien we know what it is because we recognise the shapes but Ripley doesn't so we're in the audience got that little bit of dramatic irony where we have a bit more information than the characters and we go oh this is going to go bad um, so but that shot was actually a, a forced perspective foreground miniature so they built the roof and everything uh, as a little miniature. Uh, but one of the actors in the film, I think it was James Remar, he he wasn't getting along with the production particularly well and decided to sort of leave. And they brought in Michael Bean to take over as the, the role of Hicks. And they, that meant reshooting that shot. But uh, the guys doing the miniatures, because this is what happens when you're done with it, you just chuck it away. You don't keep it. There's no nostalgia like there is for us. You right. know, watching Aliens now at the time, like, no, this is just... This you know this is just stuff. So imagine how much that would sell for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but it didn't. It's it was gone. So we can't do that shot again. We'll have to rebuild that whole miniature and shoot that again. And it was a very lengthy process. Uh, but instead, James Cameron sort of went through it and said, "I'm show me the rushes." Went, "Yep, see that shot in that one take." James Remar doesn't turn around, so we don't see his face. So fuck it, we can use that. Put it in, so they got away with it. They they had a shot that they could use, and it's in the film. It's a great shot, but it's a yeah, it's mm. it's a thing that went wrong that they turned into a into a victory, and that's when yeah. I really like. <laughs> and I'm not sure. What, I, I think this is the this is the mid '80s. This is before there was that whole legal requirement to show, uh, you know, that the actor had say, if they if they don't sign off the use of their appearance, you could still use it. So I mean, there's a, there was an incident in Back to the Future where Crispin Glover wouldn't come back for Back to the Future 2 he said no you, his agents were sort of like nope you got to pay twice the amount and it was too much money and they went no we're not going to pay for that so that's why in all shots of Marty's dad in Back to the Future 2 he's upside down so you don't quite put his face together he's on some some device because yeah. it's not the same actor but they did use one shot of him in the dance and they were like you can't do that and it kicked off this whole legal case about actors rights and even though they paid him for that money and they were technically using stock footage it was of this person's identity and 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 it was their way around not paying him what he felt he was deserved so this whole thing came out and i think that's where now you need to have very specific strict signatures from certain actors to be able to use their faces and that came from back to the future too so um i think i think as far as i've read i haven't done like it a proper it. legal like yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, so but you know there's something to look into back to the future to have something to do with it um but i i'm fascinated with stuff like that little stories like that those little legal loopholes and yeah. i think the closest like legally we've been all right like you know we always we're always careful we always let people know when we're shooting stuff or the authorities know when we're shooting stuff particularly if there's action scenes but i think the first one was I, I did a zombie movie about like 
like nine years ago called Colin. And in that scene, I wanted to have a big sort of like outdoor action sequence where a bunch of people have cornered some zombies and they're just beating the shit out of them. And so we, we shot this in a, in a little cul-de-sac where <laughs> my uh, flatmate at the time lived. And so I went to all the people in the street and said, hey, is it okay if we film here? They were all they all loved it. They were all fine with it. Got a bunch of people down and we just went crazy shooting this absolute chaos. We had a smoke machine, so it looked like there'd been an explosion and all that sort of stuff. Only small stuff. Very cheap movie. Um, but uh, then a cop sort of showed up out of nowhere. I guess someone thought it'd be funny to call the cops. And this guy showed up and said, oh, I thought... I saw the cop approaching. I thought, oh no, he's going to take our footage off us. So I took the tape out, quickly gave it to one of the zombies, said, hide this. And I just walked up to him, waved with the camera. So if he took the camera off us, we wouldn't lose the footage that we'd shot. And I said, hey man, sorry, I said, we're shooting you. We did some check with everyone, they seemed fine. He went, oh no, it's cool, it's cool. Because he was by himself. And he thought, I was told to come down here because there was a riot. And I thought it was a joke. And then I showed up, and then it genuinely looked like a riot. I'm actually quite relieved that it isn't. I went, oh, cool, cool. I said, well, we kind of finished now. Anyway, we weren't. And he went, oh, no, no, it's all right. As long as it's not a real riot, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> I went, oh, nice policeman's uniform. Do you want to be in the scene? <laughs> he said, uh, oh, no, you know, got to get back to the office. And he, then he chipped off. And I thought, oh, wow, that went smoothly. Let's keep shooting. And we shot a little bit more. And then that was it. And we got the whole scene. But, you know, we were shooting a, a robbery inside a store for Magpie, which ended up being get, getting cut out of that movie. Um, and even though we had permission to be in there, no one was outside. Someone drove past seeing guys with balaclavas and guns inside the shop that was actually closed at that point and just went, oh, the shop's getting robbed. Swansea's armed response unit descended on us. <laughs> and I was suddenly terrified that like uh, one of our camera operators, and this was at the time when like, you know, 70s had just sort of come out and were being used on a rig, on a stabilizing rig. And I thought, they're not gonna know what that looks like. It's like a fucking bazooka. They're gonna shoot Alex. <laughs> I feel terrible. And uh, you know, yeah, no one got shot, it was fine. But um, yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was one of those things where you just go, oh, can this just wrap up so we can finish off shooting the scene and carry on now? And uh, it didn't put us behind too much, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, there's so much, I think, a novel could be written about every single movie production. People are, are, are really into like stuff, even like the making of the room. There's a book about that. Uh, there's a, I've got a book on the making of the seventies King Kong. Uh, there's books on the making of Star Wars and, and Jaws. Every movie, it doesn't matter how big or small. If there was a novel written about it, it would be the most fascinating read because there's so much stuff that happens in the making of a film that just blows my mind. Yeah. I, 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 I just wish that the, the, in the Rick and Morty, you know, universe where that, that exists, where there's a book for every movie, I'd send Rick to go get me every book and bring it back so I could just read the making of, you know, Troll 2 or the making of Things, you know, yeah. these terrible movies, the making of Suburban Sasquatch, you know, terrible <laughs> movies that, that no one would ever write about that I just want to know more because the making of The Room, for example, is a, is a cracker. Yeah. That makes sense. I waffled a lot then, John. No, that, that's absolutely awesome. It just takes me back to a memory I had when I was shooting a project in sixth form. It was yeah. a massive action sequence, and I had two guys in balaclavas, got some BB guns, sprayed them black. Um, they had a bag on their shoulder, and I said, right, okay, so what you've got to do is you've got to run down the corridor, sit down, look through the bag, little nod to each other, pick it back up as if it's quite heavy, chuck it on your shoulder and then I want you to just run down this stairwell and what obviously you don't consider when you're in sixth form and shooting a f film inside your school is that there might be something going on other than what you're doing <laughs> and there was an evening course and as the guys holding two massive guns and a bag and wearing balaclavas <laughs> bolted down the stairwell a very sweet innocent lady was walking up it and um yeah, it took, it took a pretty yeah knock the, the guilt the guilt was absolutely <laughs> absolutely incredible <laughs> but, uh, yeah I hope she um, I hope she got over that one quite quickly but she looked absolutely petrified there's you know there's a weird thing you, you see you see the reactions that people really would have to those things we, we you know when we did one on my uh, I, I'm, I'm still connected with my old lecturers from when I was in uni in Swansea and uh, my film lecturer is amazing. She used to edit uh, sort of on, on, on bigger movies. She was an assistant editor on Sid and Nancy, which blew my mind. So I'd always ask her questions about that. And, and so we stayed in touch. And, and she, <laughs> every now and then she'll send me a message going, hey, 
at least your days of getting the cops to descend on you in the streets of Swansea are through because the one I was talking about wasn't even the first time that happened on that same fucking street. <laughs> the first time it happened, I did. I was like, I was 18. I hadn't called anyone to let them know we were making a film. I just thought, oh, everyone will know it's fake. There's a camera here. People don't see cameras. People don't see reflectors. People see a guy with a balaclava and a gun. And yeah. that's it. Everything else is gone. It's like, there's this perfect, like, old cinema-style vignette around everything else that should give them a clue it ain't real, including my lousy acting. And, uh, yeah, so we we shot this... Uh, and, you know, there was someone walking towards us, and I thought, oh, we'll finish the take, and then I'll turn and say to him, we're just making a movie. So I got this little gun pointed at a car saying, get out of that car! Get out of that fucking car! <laughs> and, and, and the person just kind of just kept walking, didn't even cross the street, just walked past us, just sort of like, no, no, just act like nothing's, like everything's fine. And of course, like I took the balaclava off looking at and made eye contact and said, we're just making a film, okay? And they just sort of nodded politely. You know, I, I, I swear my memory has suddenly placed a single bead of terrified sweat dripping down their temple as they walked past. I'm like, we're just making a film. I don't think they believe that for a second. In fact, I think they could have actually been the person who called it in because we finished filming. Everything was fine. Went into my <laughs> my house at the time, my parents' house, because I just just got a DVD player and a surround sound system. I was like, listen to this, guys, this is great. So uh, we watched the half of Jurassic Park, got in the car to go back for our afternoon courses, and this police van slides up alongside us. A door opens, and the cop sticks his head down and goes, oh, boys, I don't suppose you've seen anyone around here with a gun, have you? And I said, oh. And I went, no. And as soon as I said no, the guy next to me, my, my friend, just went, it was us! And I went, asshole i just said no and i said oh I mean, we got a prop gun but surely we weren't and he went all right boys get out of the car and then they went oh christ and then it was the, the first time i was dragged before the dean uh the first time it never happened again but i was like oh it's like an american thing like go see the dean and uh he was just like ah oh, okay lesson learned don't don't, don't do that again, I guess. I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely, sorry. And I think at that point, I think still that uni doesn't sign off on any projects that have guns in it. So we've, we've kind of ruined everyone's aspirations to do action movies at Swansea Institute of Higher Education. <laughs> it's like, nope, they, they don't they don't do any action there, not with guns at least. As the saying goes, all for the shot though, right? Oh, I mean, it was a perfectly <laughs> slightly out of focus camcorder shot. It was worth every, uh, it was worth nearly getting my head blown off by a, a, a panicky, Swansea uh, you know SWAT team member but the thing is I imagine in Swansea all they ever get called out for is a bunch of students waving fucking guns around so I think it was obviously routine to them at that point they're like oh another film like I'm sure I heard someone say oh, I'm not it's another film boys it's like one day we'll be in an awesome firefight but not today <laughs> it's awesome um, so going on from that um, I think it kind of moves quite nicely into Another question that I have, and it's for getting films financed, so you don't have to work mm. on such, well, no budget or yeah. your own budget, which is usually considered no budget. Yeah. But when you, when you when you have to go and get a film financed, can you talk us through the process of how you pitch it, what that treatment looks like, and then what you go on to next? Well, we've had the easiest way to look at it is that this year we've had two films financed. Um, uh, I say I say this year they were kind of financed at the, the end of last year and the, the productions rolled into this year. So, funnily enough, um, we hadn't so Night Shoes. We did two films. I I wrote, I wrote and directed two films this year. Uh, Night Shoes and Fistful of Lead. Fistful of Lead had a lot of help on because that was co-written. The hard work was done by Philip Dias, who's a really good friend of mine. He's a teacher and uh, you know just a, a great writer, a great collaborator, and we work really really well together. So I'd done I'd written Night Shoes. I didn't want to write it. I wanted to improvise. Uh, I, I wanted to get the structure correct, like I did with Magpie. Get the structure as correct as I felt it needed to be to tell the story effectively, then improvise those scenes as we were shooting. And then the action scenes would come where they come, and then everything is, you know, the routine of shooting it. Um, which sounds difficult, but we, we did it on Magpie, and I think it worked really well, and I wanted to do that again, except in a different genre. So, uh, but there was a person we were looking at who was going to finance the film, and uh, he said, I, I can't get a film financed with you saying you'll, you're going to make it up as you go along. I, I can't do that. You've got to write a script. So I quickly sort of spaffed out this script for Night Shooters, and then, uh, and then that sort of didn't quite work out with the finance there. 
So we were looking for other people, alternate routes of finance. And a filmmaker friend very generously put me in touch with his financier because he makes very low budget films worth 35,000. And so uh, I said, oh, look, you know, we'd like to make this film. We got all, got along with that financer really, really well. He took it to, because uh, the, the, the process is you have a pitch, financier will take that to a sales agent. A sales agent will ass assess how well they think it'll sell in certain markets. This particular sales agent focuses on middle America and uh, the UK. Nowhere else. Uh, so they don't really, um, they, they don't look for world sales or other territories. So, uh, and I think there was, at the time that happened, another company came to us, a, a UK distributor, uh, came to us and said, we'd like to finance nice shoes. I thought, oh, that's cool. And they were happy to go with it as it was. And how did they find you, sorry? Um, this was in when we were casting the net out, trying to find anyone that would be interested. Right, and okay. What we were looking for for night shows was quite small. We were looking for 50,000. Um, so comparatively speaking, that's quite small. And so another company came back to us and said, we'll do this, we'll, we'll, we'll finance this, we'll distribute it. Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's good. I sort of spoke to Michelle Parker, my producer, and said, what's the ideal scenario here? And she said the ideal scenario would actually be if they financed, if the people who ultimately financed uh, Night Shooters finance it, and then the other guys want us to do something else, because then we get everything. And I thought, oh, that is really good. Well, uh, we sort of, there was a bit of back and forth from the people that we really wanted to work with on a long-term relationship, who were the guys who ultimately financed the Western. Um, and they sort of said, oh, if you change this, 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 and this, and Night Shooters, they might consider looking at it. And we said, look, someone else is willing to finance it. And they suggested, oh, go with those guys then. If they're happy, just go with those guys. We'll do something else, which is the, the answer we wanted. Uh, and then they said, would you do a Western? And I said, oh, okay. We'd need more than, a little bit more than 35,000 to do it. If we could do it for maybe 40,000, that would be handy. And they said, yeah, great. Okay, we can sort that out. So we had Night Shooters and a Western. The plan was to shoot Night Shooters before Christmas. After Christmas, shoot the Western. And then I'd go through post on both of them, like parallel. Um... And yeah, for some reason, I managed to find the time to be able to do it. And, it and it worked really well. And it was really interesting just to see the two sides of how of how it was managed because the guys who finance the Western have a lot of experience in sales. They don't give necessarily a shit about how the film turns out. It's more to do with how the film sells. And it's all based on, you know, a, a, a very cleverly designed cover that sits on a shelf a certain way, which is how a lot of you know distributors do their stuff. But I think these guys had it down to a fine art where every film they'd made turns a very, very good profit. So keep, so they fall into something that I think is handy when it comes to a filmmaker. If you keep the budgets low enough, it's an attractive enough proposition to an investor because they'll get that money back or there's a good chance they'll get that money back. But their sales are only based on sort of that US market unit sales, which I've never really relied on unit sales because you've got to sell a lot of units to make that money back. Nope, they do that and, and it works for them. Um, but we've made a film for them that they can sell to other charities so they stand to make a lot more money off that now because if we can sell that to, you know, this film that we made that looks like it costs, you know, a couple of hundred thousand, they make that money back uh, through international sales. So we sort of win and they're happy and then they finance more. And that company has actually financed the three films we've got off them so far. So there's, um, there's the one that we were, that uh, there's one that we're doing early next year. Uh, so well, kind of like this year we're starting it, mm. uh, but the bulk of it's going to be done next year, early next year. Uh, there's a film that we did that someone's just got to sort of produce. Uh, basically we, we just produced it for another director. Um, and then there was Fistful of Lead, which we did. And so, so both of those films, it's interesting as well, because we can see how the profit's going to come in and we're going to sort of see that money from uh, the West. And that's the thing that we're going to sort of be all right with. But I think with Night Shoes, that seems, <laughs> for some reason, I feel that we're going to like, oh, well, the amount of money that was spent in other areas. It's <laughs> like, ah, we might not see any money for that for quite a while. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's a sort of less incentive really to do things that way. But um but again, that's much more to do with the fact that, you know, there's a difference between making a film so that you can have a film out there that's kind of cool and awesome and fun. And then a film is a sort of business choice. And, and I think we, we need to try and make the balance of the two because 
you know, we want films with bigger budgets. And if our films make money, then it's easier for the investors to go, oh, yeah, your film's made way more than what you're asking for for this next film. So, okay, we can justify giving you a little bit more. Uh, and as our company grows, we can become investors as well and invest in some of those films. So we actually get more money back through that than just making them and saying, okay, you know, when our percent is ready, you'll send it all over. But the good thing about this other company that we work for um that we make films for is that you know we we see a lot of you know we, we it's a lot of upfront stuff it's not net profits net profits is where you basically do shit for free because there's loads of reasons to come up with not giving you net profits but you know like gross profits but yeah we get stuff <laughs> so well, we we should do it's uh it's it's fistful of lead is released in december we'll find out how much money it makes and uh how many how well it sells and uh yeah if it works well we'll hopefully make another wesson so we've got a strong idea for another one where this one is almost like a like an like a testing ground really like we made the i think we made a really fun film but it's also like oh okay this worked this was a pretty easy film to pull together and the reason it was so easy is we just come off 17 nights on night shooters uh and then we were working days to do the west and they were like jesus we're getting up at a reasonable time we're finishing at a reasonable time because the sun goes down this is the easiest film <laughs> we've ever shot mm -hmm. so we start we're, i'm a little bit worried because i don't know i think i do fall into that mindset of if you work if it's if it's a little bit hard then you've been doing something you know then you've worked hard and therefore you know what you come away with is is something that's special but that one was so easy it just worries me. <laughs> I look at it and go, is this any good? Because, I mean, I like it, but is this any good? Because this feels fucking easy. This is like the easiest film I've ever made. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think, I'm, I'm hoping this because we've just honed our skills a little bit better and, you know, we controlled a lot of the organising on that one. Whereas on Night Shows, we had to sort of like move a little bit to sort of accommodate some acting, certain actors' schedules. And that really caused a problem on a low-budget film because when it takes you 40 minutes to set up to shoot a couple of bits here because that actor couldn't show up one day, then you're going to spend another 40 minutes going somewhere else to shoot the rest of your day's work. It's tough. You know, that's a lot. That's, you know, that's, that's nearly two hours of the day that's taken out. And then, of course, you've got a lunch break. That's the third hour. So you haven't got much time to shoot, you know, yeah. on a 10-hour on a day, which is like we don't like to push it to 12 because it's, it's not fair. But, um, you know, sometimes you have to and... Yeah, it, I remember on night shooters, uh, we got snowed out on our last day and I turned around to someone who'd done a couple of films with me and I said, you know what, I'd love to actually wrap a film instead of just stop shooting the fucking thing. And uh, on the West, and I was like, hey, look, we actually wrapped and we wrapped early as well. And that's it, we're done. To the pub, everyone. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, it'd be great to talk about getting your film financed and the process of doing so, so we don't have to work on such tight budgets. Um, what does the process look like when you're putting together a pitch or treatment and sending that to a financier? And if there are any red flags as well that you would avoid when putting together those contracts? It's, it's, you know what, the last two we've had, it's, they've been a little bit different. So for Night Shooters, uh, I'd come off a film before that that didn't go quite well. Um, and so what I wanted to do was make sure that all of the things that sort of tripped us up on that previous film didn't trip us up on night shooters so there were things like you know uh, i think i had final sign off on the film um i might we might have put something in there that was like you know providing the film isn't longer than a certain amount i can have the, the director's cut basically um and I, I actually don't even think that provision was put in there it never came up which is amazing someone's like yeah because <laughs> when it came to actually finishing the film Fucking hell, I bet they regret putting that clause in because they were throwing so many notes at me. And I was like, oh, nope, 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 not that one. Nope, I'm not doing that. Nope, I'm not doing that. <laughs> they got really pissed off about it. And I was like, check your contract, guys. Uh, you know, this, you know, I'm not, and I wasn't being an asshole about it. I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to make those changes based on your insecurities. Like, you know, because that happens. People get insecure, they pay for a thing and they go, we need this for this. And, and I remember looking at night shoes and, and I remember saying, it's probably no again. No, it's technically accurate, but I just I said, look, look at films that are made on the budget that you gave us to make night shooters. This is what those films should look like. This is what night shooters looks like. I've done my job. Don't moan at me about not being able to sell it. That's not my fucking problem. You know, I've done that. I've done my job. I've made a film that looks and sounds much better than the film this budget should look. Um, 
to the point where I'm hoping that if people watch it, they don't go, oh, for the budget, that's fine. You don't want anyone to do that. You just want people to enjoy the film. So, uh, whereas I think with the with the other guys, with Fistful of Lead, we didn't really have that at all. We just had, you know, I don't think it even came up. And again, because of, like the nature of the films they make, you look at the other films they make, and we just sort of thought, you know what, when they see this, it's of a, again same thing. It's of a because of a, we've got a much stronger team than the films that they usually release. So we thought, well, look, they'll be happy enough with how this looks. They're probably not going to give us any hassle, uh, and they didn't. Not, nothing came back. The the only requirement they have is that, um, and this might be the first word you beep out on your uh, on your thing. They say if you can have no one, no one can say cunt. And um, don't have any. I think they want to avoid sex as well. And I thought, well, you know what? I've never been interested in putting sex in my movies. It's never been a thing that I've been remotely interested in. Um, I do have people say cunt quite a lot, though. So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, we'll pull that one back. Um, and yeah, and that was it. And even then, I kind of went, oh, you know what? I'm going to throw it, I'm going to tease one. And uh, my producer not said, look, can we maybe pull that back just a touch? And I went, yeah, okay, fine. So we did, and it works quite nicely. But uh yeah it's a very i i think putting in i think working in little things like that that don't get you screwed up further down the line because everyone's happy everyone's friendly to start with and then when people start seeing rough edits they don't understand the nature of rough edits all the time necessarily and they start to panic about how things are and they forget the sound design is an important thing that needs to sort of um that that needs to be considered when you're watching a rough edit and, and, and and visual effects that aren't finished or even put in so I think in the case of Night Shoes, it sort of worked out nicely because, you know, I've seen the film play with an with several audiences now because we've had a lovely little festival run. And luckily, you know, because festival runs, <laughs> sometimes no one shows up. But we've had pretty packed out cinemas uh, for all of the screenings. And it's just kind of great to hear the audiences sort of react consistently to everything. You were at the first one, actually, for Night yeah, Shoes. absolutely loved it. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so, and it was like... So funny. It was like that. That reaction was the same yeah. all the way through. Um, and even on the bits that you were worried about, mm. I think, you know, some moments that... Comedic moments that transitioned into very serious moments. Yeah. And people went with it the, in, yeah. the entire time and didn't didn't think that the funny moment was still going on yeah. at all. And like you say, all those moments were completely consistent yeah. across, you know, in, in terms of audience reaction. Oh, it's the, the terror of like, you what know. What a feeling though. Because you make that, you make the decision of, yeah, let's make this, you know, we've had them laughing for the last hour. Let's have them, let's have them in a stunned silence now. Yeah. And then you do it and you go. <gasps> Nailed it. And you, just, and you can hear a pin drop and you're just like, oh God, okay, that worked. Okay, fine. And then in the next yeah. scene you go, now nah, this is the one where someone's just going to laugh and not really quite understand what we've done. And uh, mm. I would have screwed something up along the way. Nope. Fine. And it's consistent. Uh, it's so know. well balanced. But I mean, I mean, like, could that have been influenced by a contract where they where your creative control could be influenced by them say you didn't have that final cut and things like that is it when it comes down to red flags is it just you trying to maintain creative control well it's it's more to do with you know on a technical level writing and and introducing characters a certain way i mean the biggest no actually the the note the big notes that i think they were sort of having the biggest sort of hissy fits over were, were to do with introducing the bad guy characters um and i think i had a little test which is really it's really bad that i said <laughs> i'm saying this but my test was right i'll see if they really understand what they're talking about and i'll throw this at them because uh, the film opens night shows opens with a five minute action scene it's like the film within a film i thought this is great because you don't you don't get stuff like that in films like this and it sets a tone and and uh, and then we're introduced to our characters. We have a 10-minute sequence where we set up everything you need to know about the location and the characters and the equipment they're using that they en- end up using to try and save their own lives. All those things, um, hopefully subtly established or in a way that's interesting or fun. So you've got to have that 10 minutes. Uh, and they kept wanting to sort of shift so that the bad guys come at a certain minute in the film. They want the bad guys in there about like I think 14 minutes, something like that, because they read a book that said you have to introduce fucking characters on, on this minute. I was like, yeah, if the films are 90 minutes, <laughs> maybe. But nevertheless, I, I don't really go with that shit. You know, I, everyone thinks Save the Cat is the fucking book on how to write story structure. Do you know why? Because it's the easiest one to read. That's all. <laughs> because of that, 
everyone thinks that that's how you should tell a story and it's bollocks. There's nothing wrong with it. It is a really great book and I highly recommend everyone read it. But you've got to read other books on it as well. You know, you can't just read this three-act hero's journey shit. There's more to movies than that. And this uh, this one, I think then that... So my little test thing was, well, we need all this stuff. I've designed it so that those characters appear here so that we know exactly who the characters are who we should be sympathizing with. Although it's an ensemble piece, I'm not into cutting between both sides. I don't want the audience to see both sides of the story. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. And this is how we add layers to them as the film rolls on. Um, and they just wanted the bad guys in sooner. And I said, okay, well, the only way I can do that is if I cut about three minutes out of the opening action scene. And they went... Yeah, cool, cool. As long as you get them in on this minute, I'm like, right, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I was like, yep, that's it, conversation over. And I think that just that made them quite annoyed. You know, you can understand if you very firmly believe that your opinion is the correct opinion, then of course you're going to want to argue your case. You're going to want people to do exactly what you say. Because literally what I did, I was just careful enough to make sure it was in the contract to let me do it. But if it wasn't the case, I don't think this film would work very well. And, you know, and, and I guess a good example of that is to, to to look at Night Shooters structured the way I wanted it structured and edited the way I wanted it edited. And then just pick any one of their previous films and see how the films measure up side by side. <laughs> and if my film is more interesting than their films, then maybe I'm right. If their films are more interesting than my film, then maybe they would have been right if I'd have listened. But I'm an asshole and I made my movie my way, so what the fuck? <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, but on the Western, it didn't come up. Uh, we looked at the, the, the films that they were producing and we thought, oh, look, if we make something that will really wow these guys they'll be on our side and we'll support our choices. And, you know, and, and we wanted a long-term relationship with those. And actually, to be perfectly honest, we would have been more willing to listen to those guys if they would have come back with notes based on what to me feel like very intelligent marketing choices. And, you know, um, we still would have fought our corner to some degree, but it wouldn't have been as aggressive, I don't think. So taking a more holistic view at the whole process, everything from budgeting, directing on the day, script writing, crewing. What's the most common mistake that you see filmmakers making or perhaps a mistake that you made uh, that you learned a big lesson from? I, I tell you a mistake I see others make and, and this is just through my experience. I work with a lot of young people or a lot of people who haven't necessarily done the role that we're giving them before. Say, say uh, director of photography. I'm trying to get you to be a director of photography on, on, on one of our projects. Um, hopefully a few of our projects. Depending on how much of a good time you have on it. <laughs> um, but, you know, at, at, at this point, have you, have you been director of photography on a feature? I've only ever been a DOP on short films. Never done a feature. Like, it's, it's not a risk for me. It's not a risk at all. I, I'm like, yep, yeah, cool, you'll be great. Um, I'm, 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 I was, I was gutted that you, you, you weren't free enough to do the film that we wanted yeah. you to do, but, uh, but it, it, you know, we, I know there'll be others. It's not a problem. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that, cause I've seen your work, I, I know what you can do I, on a technical level. I, I know that all those things are fine asking you to get a shot that I might want or the director that we assign might want, I, like you could do it. <laughs> so what's the, what's the problem? And you've done it under a degree of pressure. Now I know a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily go for a director hadn't done that before because they'd go, well, there's no experience. And it's like, well, just because you're looking at IMDB and that's your litmus test for experience doesn't mean that you're correct. Uh, you know, I work with a lot of really young people, uh, who sign up initially for work experience. I'm like, well, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to be in the camera department. Great, here you are. You're now an AC. And they're pulling focus and they're, you know, uh, like clapper loading and uh, putting up lights and learning and getting, you know, we, we pay people for this stuff as well. It's not like, oh, work experience, great, go over there. We won't pay you any money. You know, we, we pay these guys. It's not much. Like, no one gets paid much. Even I don't get that much. But we're all on, like, it's a... It's about taking those risks, I think. I mean, I've got script supervisor. My script supervisor on Fistful of Lead is 18 because she said, oh, I want to do that. I've always wanted to do that. I've just had a meeting with someone. I went, okay, my regular script supervisor can't make it because she was working on Star Wars, <laughs> you know, because this is how good these kids are. Um, 
you know, you come and do this. And she did it. And you know what? We didn't miss, we, we didn't miss a thing. We didn't miss a single thing, you know? And this is, this is, this is my point is that like you, you, someone will come with so much enthusiasm and appreciation for the opportunity they've been given that they will learn a lot from the, the, clusterfuck methods that I have of getting things done and they'll take that onto other films where it's a little bit more regimented or traditionally organised and then come back to my films with that knowledge and then they're sort of helping shape the production to work for them and we're open to that because we want everyone to sort of do their best and so I think that the biggest mistake I think I see people make is that they, they think, oh, this is a feature film, this is different. We have to get a different cinematographer to the ones that we've worked with before, even though we've got a great relationship with them. We've got to get different actors in. We've got to get different crew in. It's like, no, you've worked with those guys. A short film is practice. A feature film is where you take everything you've learned and the team you've put together and the chemistry you've all worked, worked out how to make, you know, perfect and you apply that to making a feature and that way your film will be better and and that's i mean i've that's how i've experienced it it's, and the beauty of film is there's no one way to get things done there are multitudes of different ways of getting things done if there was only one way of making a film that's what we'd all be doing because there wouldn't be any other way but we're not you know a pharmaceutical company precisely making things that have to be that way we're making films it's all subjective what works for me isn't going to work for other filmmakers, but it might work for some. <laughs> and the other filmmakers' methods don't work for me, but they can work for a bunch of other people. So I think it's just finding that balance and taking those risks and making the best film you can with whatever you have and not using, oh, we don't have any time, we don't have any money, all those bullshit excuses that don't mean shit. That's you not taking responsibility for the film you're making. Who gives a fuck if you don't have time or money? Then maybe don't write that script. <laughs> don't decide to make that movie. Look at what you can do and say, right, I can make this work. When someone dangled a Western in front of me, I didn't think, how the fuck do you make a Western for that small amount of money? I went, well, if we do this, 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 and this, we're essentially talking costumes and location. I think we can do that. We wrote that movie and we made that movie for better or worse. I think it works quite nicely. Um, you know, that's why I'm, that's why that's why we handed it over though if it was a piece of shit there was a fire the hard drives are gone and the other guy with the other hard drive he was trying to put it out with the hard drive it's all gone it's all gone no one can see nothing insurance claim yeah. <laughs> that is such a massive point I think that's the one thing that I say to people as well it's like you don't have to be perfect there is no such thing no, nothing will ever go your way as you intended it to on any shoot uh, but as long as you're just as long as you are absolutely enthusiastic to mm. problem solving and you're quick mm. you do you do pay a real attention to being quick you're going to be fine because yeah. again if you're working with a nice team most if you make a mistake most people don't really mind as long as you admit to it or that they know that you are working towards the solution it's it's you know we all have it we all have those moments where you just go ah I should, oh, I was wrong there. Oh, and it was yeah. just pointed out. <laughs> I, like, I, we did a thing, or we were doing a thing on the West, and, and, and Sam Walker turned around and said, oh, I, I think we should do this, 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 and this. And I was like, yes, we definitely should. And we just, it was fobbed over, it was, it was, it was, it was you know, really quickly done, changed. It, I doubt anyone remembers it, but in my head, I was there going, so fucking stupid, I'm so stupid. <laughs> I was like, I feel like such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but like luckily you've got like do you know what there are a lot of people who just yeah. because of that would go no no they'd put the defenses up nope 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 and they would refuse to accept that that person just made a really competent decision and they would they would marry their mistake and yeah. just and they'd be fucked and it, it's, it's like I don't understand that method of thinking like no no one's saying it just to swing their dick around they're doing it because they want to help you make the best film because their name's on it too exactly so yeah it's uh you know it's just you just got to embrace uh, all of those those amazing you know like like nuggets of genius that you surround yourself with like don't don't get the shittest crew together so that you can be the smartest person in the room. Get better people than you. Like the only yeah. reason anything we I've ever done works is because there are better people than me around, and I'm the one scratching his head, going, "Oh, can we make this work?" You know, it's you know, and and everyone I know, every director I've admired, says some variant on that. Well, you know, they're surrounded by 
smarter people stan winston said the best thing someone said to him how do you get to be like the genius that you are and he said i'm not a genius i just surround myself with guys like james cameron steven spielberg you know all these other great people that i just you know and, and I, I i'm i'm kind of hanging on to them and their genius i just create characters to go in the excellent stories they tell if their stories aren't any good no one gives a shit about characters we've done great characters in movies no one likes and as a result no one talks about the characters that we've done some of our best work is in films that no one's heard of but you know that's how it is <laughs> and for the final question what motivates you to work i def definitely have a fear that the energy is going to run out just because of the way you see other filmmakers do their thing and i'm just terrified that like i'll run out of steam before i actually get anywhere you know i, I mean i know it sounds quite strange but I, I have aspirations i know like you know that everything is, seems like to be these really tiny incremental steps and I, I want to make more movies i want to you know i th i think this year i'm really excited because i did two and i could do it again you know um like i nearly did three if if, <laughs> if the money would have come through a little bit earlier i would have done three films i would have at least shot three films this year and uh and i think that it's it i feel like i've i've got the energy to do it and you know there's a fear that it's going to go away just because i've seen it in other filmmakers um jesus i've seen it in some of my peers some of the guys who are my age they just they, they, they get given up i was like holy shit you've done more than i have i was like this is really scary is that what's gonna so is that what's gonna happen to me too so you know uh eating lots of healthy food and <laughs> trying to keep the energy up less carbs <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think I think that's it. There's there's so much uh, that I worry about, um, and and also on top of all of that, like again, I worry that the work that we're doing now isn't even good enough. I mean, I, I think that sort of self-loathing is the key ingredient to pushing you to be better, because if you can look at your work and go, ah, oh, cool, yeah, perfect, you know, oh, I'm happy with that. You, you're lacking that no. crucial ingredients for growth. You've got to have just enough self-loathing <laughs> to be able to to want to grow and be better, um, because that's that's the that's the one thing I have. I mean, <laughs> this this morning, um, as I said to my girlfriend, oh, is our film? as bad as this film <laughs> and she was like you know and, and she doesn't give me any time she has no time for that in level of insecurity she's like you know you're not that bad so fuck this i ain't getting involved with your you know please like me shit and i'm like no 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 i genuinely am that insecure <laughs> like i really need you. i really need you to, to let me know that and uh, like she just doesn't buy it <laughs> she thinks i'm full of shit <laughs> i can't i can't do anything <laughs> but uh but no but i think that's the thing though is like it i you know you look at your films and you go jesus I'm as bad as the dude that made Birdemic. <laughs> you know, I have all the the storytelling sense of the guy who made the room. You know, I'm like those Canadians who made things. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm terrible. I need to be better. So I think when you got that sort of when that's the terror that drives you, you know, if you 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 should like scientifically speaking you should grow i mean that's, that's you know yeah absolutely <laughs> we all figured out how to walk that was really hard to start with <laughs> you know but you didn't see it as hard and that's that's the honest part of it it's probably like if someone don't mean to put words in your mouth but i think i feel like it sometimes with some of the work that i do if someone said to you five years ago you're going to be doing two features in a year you might have gone whoa really definitely because i spent two years before that trying to get one made <laughs> right exactly that so i think that having that sort of skeptical viewpoint of your work and what you're capable of does eventually push you to show that you can do way more than you thought and just by thinking about it properly yeah and logically and with a bit of positive attitude to you know to any problem you you, you we, we you need to find a psychologist and because we were to, uh, and, and do one of these based entirely on imposter syndrome which mean you were talking about like, oh yeah uh, we week. were chatting about this and, yeah. and i was just like i i wasn't as a i wasn't aware of it at all uh and and i heard about it and i was like oh wouldn't it be amazing if that's what i had if i would if i've got if i've got that then brilliant it explains so much <laughs> but uh at the same time like i like i I'd even feel like an imposter if I had imposter syndrome. Like I don't even, I'm not even talented enough to have this condition. It's like, it's like, so it's a, it's a, a real bizarre 
that I, I think those those are healthy things to have. They are like, and uh, you know, I learned about it through through my flatmate who um, was AC on night shooters and uh, for a couple of days on night shooters and AC on all of the um, on fistful of lead. And when he showed up on night shooters, I'd known him for years. We just never worked together. When he showed up on night shooters. I didn't know, you know, what how he worked at all. It was complete, you know, it was a complete surprise. Every single day he was there. He was only there for about four or five days. It ran so smoothly, so fucking brilliantly, so perfectly. And uh, then on the western, he sort of was focus pulling. And he realised that the other AC was very talented as a focus puller. And he went, you know what, you're better than this. I am. He just handed that over to him. And he was telling, like, this is a guy who I've seen work and he's so fantastic and his, his work ethic is incredible. He can drive a team so well and so gently as well. There's no aggression at all. There's no authority or dick swinging. It's incredible. And and then he says to me, yeah, there's this thing called imposter syndrome. I have that. I'm like, how the fuck do you have that? Like, you're so switched on with literally everything. How the fuck do you have it? Oh, I must be a real imposter. <laughs> you know, it's amazing, yeah. and so I think it's it's a it's, it's a, you you. I'd I'd like to sit in on the imposter syndrome one if you ever do one of those because I think it would be fantastic just yeah. to hear really what it's all about and you know see that studied <laughs> and torn <laughs> apart and then go, oh yeah, I really do have that. <laughs> we'll discuss this on part two. <laughs> if I if I do, I might still actually be an imposter. Perfect. All right, you're a legend. Thank Where can you, people buddy. find you? Um, oh, I am. Uh, I'm on Twitter at at mark underscore v underscore price, and that's also my Instagram handle as well. You're a gentleman. <laughs> Thank you, buddy.